0: In this episode, we hear Dr. Gail Bradbrook of Extinction Rebellion and Stephen Reed of the Psychedelic Society talk about their own mind-expanding experiences, how psychedelics have been useful in their lives and how they could be used as a tool in addressing the climate crisis. I have to say really clearly I'm not here to speak on behalf of Extinction Rebellion. Um, Extinction Rebellion takes no position on psychedelic medicine, so it's very personal uh, opinions that I'm sharing. Won't stop the tabloid headlines. but um, (laughs) uh, And also I'm going to particularly talk about cultural appropriation or what it means to fly to countries and do medicines in other countries. My uh, journey with psychedelic medicines began, uh, as many people do, uh, experimenting with psilocybin mushrooms from this uh, country. I've worked with uh, peyote and San Pedro over quite a few years. I've been fortunate enough to be held in ceremony. And um, I came to a stage in 2016 where, having tried to start a mass civil disobedience since 2010, I felt that something was in the way both within myself and, uh, and, and, and some understanding that I had about how to go about starting a mass civil disobedience. So I went to basically pray in a deep way. I worked with an Iboga flood dose, which is probably the most terrifying thing I've ever done in my entire life. I worked with Cambo medicine from the frog and three ayahuascas, And a lot shifted, as you'd hope, <laughs> with that level of uh, stuff ingested over the course of two week period. Um, The uh, aboga was really about a rewiring of my brain, it it reinforced the happiness channels and snipped out channels that seemed to be to do with anxiety, and it'd take longer to tell that story. I did tell it in more detail at breaking convention recently and it was videoed, so it's quite a fun and interesting story. Uh, The cambo was full on as well, Um, it's like having your body hit like a tuning fork. I think I want to tell two aspects of the Ayahuasca story. There's lots to say about it. One is when you're calling in for guides and allies and that does feel like part of my... Uh, journey with extinction rebellion there's lots of synchronicities i do pray a lot and there are lots of people in the vision sensing team that hold the space behind the surface and there are many atheists and people who think this is all hippie bullshit and don't want anything to do with it and they're totally totally welcome in xr as well and one day maybe we'll get them on the medicines and sort them out i didn't mean that (laughs) (laughs) it really isn't a path for everybody this one of the things that came up on the ayahuasca was um, seeing a person that I really love and, and hold their judgment, I, I guess, in, in, good, in high esteem, looking really super pissed off with me. And what I was doing was being a really judgy activist, wanting to tell people off and tell them what to do. And um, uh, so the ayahuasca sometimes seems quite prophetic. It shows you something to come. Uh, and it meant that I had to resolve that part of myself, and I believe I have I think it was showing me this, like, I don't know if other people do this, like, petty competitiveness running little stories in your brain about you know, your friends and, and shit that's quite embarrassing when you think about what you're doing, but the Ayahuasca, I don't know if people have worked with her, she just keeps showing you until you've got the fucking message um, and I did eventually, and I took it to a therapy session, and I, I don't believe that my activism comes from that space anymore and one of the uh, principles and values of Extinction Rebellion is no blamed and shamed. So I, I guess that's one thing to say about the medicines, you know, it's about inner work, you know, what part of yourself needs to be sorted out, um, what part are you bringing to the community that's not helping, so, so the community side of things, and I do uh, wonder and, ha- and have this longing to work with the medicines on the oppressions that sit between us, I wonder if we could, um, I know that it's absolutely systemic, but I wonder if we can heal the hurts of uh, the trauma of racism uh, between us using these medicines, it's something that I'd like to investigate, have started a little bit. The other piece is the idea of teleology. It's a sort of something that can sit with science. I have a background in science, so any of this stuff always rests a little bit uncomfortably with me. So I feel a bit odd, but it all seems to make sense when you're tripping your nuts off, doesn't it? It's <laughs> um, is, is the idea that maybe uh, there's an inherent purpose in the universe. There's an inherent direction of life, and that somehow that you can be in conversation with that. And my experience has been that if you make prayers and offer yourself genuinely in service, to life, that opportunities come your way and I think we live in a very narcissistic society that means some of our prayers and some of our intentions are not of that nature and that's not to be judgmental about it because I feel like we're all very hungry people in this overindulged western consumerist society that's separated us from from what actually matters so the kind of genesis story of extinction rebellion um, involves uh, part of this journey in, in Costa Rica where I made this very very specific prayer where I sort of prayed for the codes for social change because I wondered what I was getting wrong that was meaning that, um, you know, compassionate revolution that I'd set up hadn't worked, the tax disobedience hadn't got going and so on. Uh, Who are the team I should work with? Where are they? Are the barristers that I'm talking to got my back and all this type of thing? And Terence McKenna, you know Terence McKenna, who's a sort of heroic psychonaut, had talked about the codes in the higher consciousness. So I thought, well, maybe there's some codes for social change. So that was the prayer. And, And indeed, you know, things get shown to you on the medicines that uh, later make sense um, but the very specific thing that happened was within a month I'd got back to the UK I'd tried to start a tax disobedience hadn't really worked but I'd met up with Roger Hallam because he'd seen what I was trying to do and he was doing a PhD at King's College talking about how things change how you actually build social movements and so he said let's have a meeting and we had this um, incredible four-hour meeting which for me as a nerd was perfect there was loads of involved in uh, percentages and uh, theories of, of this thing and that thing, um, lots of which are written up in the radical think tank or a talk that I've given online called How Things Change. And at the end of it I was just gobsmacked and it was clear that Roger and I would start working together and we'd start trying to find other people to work with us and we were both off doing talks and writing strategy and so on uh, based on some of this thinking and other trainings that we brought in afterwards. But um, I, I said to him, Roger, I'm so grateful, I, you know, I've had this nervous notebook full of notes and things, I said, this is exactly what I needed to know right now. And he tapped the notepad and said, well, basically, Gail, what I've just given you here are the codes for social change. (laughs) The the literal exact words of the prayer. And I actually realised that if he hadn't said that, I wouldn't have recognised that the prayers were answered. And I do wonder how often that happens. And so the thing I wanted to to, to finish with saying is that I I think that... um, It's really important how we work with these medicines that, you know, whether you see it scientifically you can think about neuroplasticity and if you look at neuroplasticity a good neuroplasticity has ten stages to it how you change your brain and the description of it sounds like a ceremony well ceremonies have been designed by indigenous people for many years and um, uh, they they have been gifted in some traditions who, as I believe, I don't know if people heard um, the wonderful Matt McCartney and his uh, fellow um, artists last night talking about the wound in the British psyche caused by the slaughter of the uh, tribes under Boudicca you know, and the early English Celts on Mona, on Anglesey, in, in, in Wales as well. That wound is, has happened, and, and how to heal that wound is so important because we got cleaved from our own indigenous traditions, and my personal belief is that the ceremonies that we can engage with are there to help us to remember or rediscover or reinvent something of these islands and I haven't yet managed to do a vision quest. Not sure if I will. It feels a bit fucking hardcore, and I realise I'm a bit of a masochist. <laughs> Maybe I won't. But um, that some people are thinking of, of holding that sort of space in these in this aisles with our plants now, having le- learned from indigenous people. And I think that um, I've been in uh, this is final comment. I've been in. Spaces over the years where people are praying as pagans, or you know, it's a sort of solstice celebration, people are setting their intentions. And again, really, without I don't feel this is from a, a, a toxically judgy place, but I've, I very rarely heard anybody say anything about themselves. And I, my personal experience is. I think, I think Gandhi said something like the best way to find yourself is to lose yourself in service of others I'm not trying to say that's what I'm like all the time by the way I'm a total dick a lot of the time <laughs> but the better part of myself is like that and I think there's something about how you set your intention that it's about service um, it's about saying, I'm here, what does life need from me? If you know what your path is, then you know, praying for support with that. If you're not sure, asking for guidance. That's been my path, and um, it, it feels as if it served well to come from that place. Thank
1: you. Keep it going. OK, since it's uh, my field, I'm just going to go back to basics a little bit before we then go further out again. Uh, so the kind of definition you might find of uh, a psychedelic in you know, a news article or textbook nowadays, a substance that induces an altered state of consciousness characterized by a hyperconnected brain state, they're often described as substances that uh, act as a reset for the brain, uh, which is one of the reasons why they uh, seem, have so, seem to have so much potential in the field of mental health. The higher doses of these substances induce uh, what in the academic literature is called a mystical spiritual type experience, which has this sixfold criteria, a sense of unity and interconnectedness, a sense of sacredness, a sense of uncovering some deeper truth about reality, a sense of peace and joy, a sense of transcending time and space, and a sense of ineffability. And if someone has an experience where they feel several of those features strongly, we might say they've had a mystical spiritual type experience. And one of the things that's so remarkable about psychedelics is that uh, probably beyond any other tool, technique, uh, you know, path, they seem to reliably be able to bring about these, these types of mystical spiritual type experience. So some people think of psychedelics very much in terms of the molecules. If you want to think in that way, then they come mainly in three families. The, the tryptamines, uh, so things like psilocybin, which is in psilocybin mushrooms, DMT, which is a psychedelic ingredient of ayahuasca, the phenethylamines, uh, mescaline, which is in the peyote and San Pedro, cacti, uh, 2CB, and finally, the lysergamides. The most famous lysergamide is LSD. LSD. And is it? Someone said, no, we have to know what you've been taking. So I think there's huge utility in being able to hold both of these understandings of psychedelics in terms of the psychedelic science and as molecules, but also as plants and, uh, you know, and mushrooms. Um, and when we consider plant psychedelics, mushroom psychedelics, uh, people often talk about having a relationship with plant spirits or plant intelligence, or my favorite phrase, plant teachers. Certainly, I, in my experiences with ayahuasca, I have found the, the intensity and the complexity of the ayahuasca experience means that treating uh, the ceremony as if I was in the presence of uh, what, you know, a very esteemed teacher to be uh, useful to the point of necessity. You know, when, I, when I haven't gone in with that kind of attitude, I've had my ass kicked repeatedly. And it's only when going in with that level of respect then uh, things start to become a little bit easier and more enlightening. Just a little bit on, on my story. Um, I grew up in South London. I had a happy childhood. I did have a father that struggled with multiple addiction issues, pornography, spending, fast food, heroin at various times in his life. He was a great father in many ways. Uh, I studied physics at Oxford. Whilst I was at Oxford, both my parents passed away within three months of each other. My father, um, with complications related to his addictions, I went to study complexity sciences at Bristol University. Uh, When I left Bristol, I got really involved in the environmental action movement, first with Climate Camp. Then with friends from Climate Camp and set up a direct action movement called UK Uncut, campaigning on tax dodging. And it was around that time that we first connected. Um, which was like, what, oh, nine years ago or something? Now, yeah. I yeah. then went and worked for the New Economics Foundation, the Green Party, the Labour Party, Greenpeace UK in a kind of freelance capacity. It wasn't until 2012, at this very festival, that I had my first psychedelic experience. Woo. Yeah, so it's, it's a very, very special place for me. Uh, it was, uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, It was uh, what I later discovered was a very high dose of 2CB, so a a synthetic psychedelic. Um, And uh, I spent most of my time sitting under one of the trees in the enchanted forest. Uh, It really was very enchanted that night, yeah. And one of the first things I do when I come back to Shambhala each year, at least when the forest opens, is go back to that grove of trees and say a little prayer of thanks. So two years later, I started the Psychedelic Society, which has grown to uh, become one of the largest uh, providers of legal psychedelic retreats globally and also has a thriving social space uh, in East London. So, yeah, I I talked about this mystical, spiritual type experience with this, you know, the sixfold definition if you talk to a psychedelic scientist, at least. And it's really this first feature, this sense of unity and interconnectedness, which has been, for me, the most profound teacher and I think is uh, the kind of key lesson or key way in which psychedelics, plant medicines can be useful to the environmental movement. Gail and I share an analysis that at the, the core of the problem is what uh, Charles Eisenstein, if some of you know him, call the, the, the story of separation. This idea that we are somehow uh, like encased like bags of flesh, fundamentally separate from one another, and certainly separate from the natural world, the, the world of the wild. And what goes with that uh, often is a sense that nature is a kind of uh, a unlimited source of resources and an unlimited sink for all of the shit that we want to put in it. And, This worldview, this perspective, is uh, well in my in my personal experience, the kind of thing that can change through uh, experience with these plant medicines that I know high enough doses to bring about these mystical spiritual type experiences. I will say, actually, you know, uh, it's it's not just psychedelics, plant medicines that help people to have these experiences. The 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 simplest technique, in in many ways, is, is meditation. People do have these kind of experiences through meditation. Um, and I, I don't think psychedelics plant medicines are for everybody. I do think they uh, would be of great benefit to a great deal of people, uh, you know, particularly at this time, and that there should be some safe and legal way of us all accessing them, uh, particularly you know, in, in the context of nature connection and the, and the climate and ecological crisis. Final thought. I don't think it's a coincidence that indigenous cultures that do continue to live in harmony and balance with the natural world almost all have a deep relationship with one or more plant teachers, whether that's ayahuasca, whether that's peyote, whether that's tobacco. And and interestingly, many of those same cultures have a very strong oral tradition um, and a tradition of song and dance. And they are very often much less interested in the written word and the thinking mind and the intellectualizing that is so common and we're all so fond of in our society instead it seems they're tuning into what for me often it, it can often be considered a, a deeper or elite or certainly complementary wisdom that is the wisdom of the body the, the intelligence of the gut and of the heart and yeah and finding ways to transmit that through through their voice and through their and through movement rather than simply relying on words so don't take anything we're saying too seriously i guess that's a, you know and make sure you do find that way of of connecting with the mystery thank you yes. <laughs>
0: Thanks to Gail and thanks to Stephen. And thanks to you for listening. We hope you can join us next time.